of you felt this would never happen. Tonight, we're starting a new chapter of the book of Hebrews, the last chapter, chapter 13. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews, the 13th chapter, and I'll begin our reading in the 12th chapter. I'd like to back up to um, verse 25, chapter 12, and read a portion of the 13th chapter as well, which will be the focus of our study tonight. Hear now God's word beginning at Hebrews 12.25. See that you refuse not him that speaks, for if they escape not when they refused him that warned them on earth, much more shall not we escape to turn away from him that warns from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more will I make the tremble not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as the things that have been made, that those things which are not shaken may remain. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have gratitude, whereby we may offer worship well-pleasing to God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let love of the brethren continue. Forget not to show love unto strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds and bound with them, them that are ill-treated as being yourselves also in the body. Let marriage be had in honor among all, and let the dead be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Be free from the love of money, content for such things as you have, or himself hath said, I will in no wise fail thee, neither will I in any wise forsake thee, so that with good courage, we say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what shall man do unto me? Remember them that have the rule over you, men that spake unto you the word of God, and considering the issue of their lives, imitate their faith. And thus far the reading of God's word. We come to Hebrews 13th chapter, we run into um, what is something of an occupational hazard for commentators, I'm afraid. Uh, it is almost habitual for commentators to think when you get to the end of the book, you get miscellaneous exhortations. As most commentators say, here we have a postscript. The, the real body of theological literature and ethical instruction has been delivered, and now the author just starts throwing out all these miscellaneous instructions. It's like, well, time's almost up, so let me say this, that, and the other, and be done with it. Well, it's not impossible, of course, that that is what motivated the author, and that's what he's doing, and God can make a sanctified use of that, but I don't think that we read. We read this properly. And that's why I didn't start the reading uh, for tonight's lesson in chapter 13, or what we call chapter 13. This may be another good example of a place where a book of the Bible has been, you know, where the text has been broken for a book of the Bible to begin, or a new chapter to begin. And it's highly inappropriate if we're going to get really the thrust, the overall thrust of what the author wants us to say. And so to kind of demonstrate that tonight, so you'll take chapter 13 with a great deal more seriousness than some of the commentators do, and see how it structurally is integrated to the rest of the book, what I'd like to do is outline for you what the author of Hebrews is doing. We could do this for the whole book, but I'm simply going to pick up my outline at the end of chapter 10. If you look at chapter 10, and we'll begin at verse 16, we have a quotation from Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days. Uh, ending with the declaration, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Then the author says, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a great high priest, or a great priest, over the house of God. The author is concluding a thought here that can easily be described as the superiority of the New Covenant.
course, he's been arguing the superiority of the New Covenant throughout the epistle, and we're picking up one of the climactic arguments to that effect, that we now have a high priest who's offered the once-for-all sacrifice, and we can enter into the holy place with him before the very presence of God. Now, that consideration of the superiority of the New Covenant leads in them to an exhortation not to fall short of the grace of God. And we see that in verses 26 through 31. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. He uses the authority argument from the law of Moses. And um, into verse 30, Vengeance belongs to me, I will recompense, and the Lord shall judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 39, But we are not of them that shrink back into perdition, but of them that have faith in the saving of the soul. So we have this uh, exhortation not to fall short of God's grace and a warning about God's judgment. Now there are ethical consequences that the author intersperses with this theological truth and his exhortation and warning. And notice the ethical consequences. He says in verse 22, we draw near unto God. Verse 23, we persevere. And in verse, um, verses 24 and 25, we read of brotherly love and good works. Let's look at each one of those. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. Verse 23, let us hold back the confession of our hope and waver not. Verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke into love and good works, not forsaking our assembling together. And the author, after this is, uh, it doesn't follow exactly this order, but after the um, continuation of his exhortation, then says in verse 32, remember the former days in which you endured great conflict of suffering and so forth. He says brotherly love and good works should continue even in persecution. not to fall short of the grace of God, don't fall back into Judaism, don't renounce your Christianity, and certain ethical consequences, particularly having to do with drawing near to God, persevering in our Christian faith, and showing brotherly love, especially in the midst of persecution. At the end of verse, uh, excuse me, of chapter 10, the author says, We are not of them that shrink back into perdition, but of them that have faith under the saving of the soul. This becomes a crux verse consideration. But we aren't like those that are going to fall back. We have faith under the saving of the soul. And that leads in, you see, to chapter 11, what is faith? And so we have, um, if you will, an, an exhortation, another exhortation coming now to faith, which is exemplified in the Old Covenant. And that exemplification is found throughout chapter 11. And then the author goes to certain ethical consequences after that exhortation to persevering faith. And those ethical consequences are found in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, imitate such active faith and persevere in the race. Persevere. He says, you are coming to Jesus, and consider him draw near. Now the image, not of going into the holy place, but of running a race with Jesus at the end of the race. Run to Jesus. Come near to Jesus. Consider what he has done. In verses 12 and 13 of the same chapter, he says, consider one another. Encourage one another. Lift up the hands that hang down and the palsies and make straight uh, lanes for your feet and so forth. Is concern for the brothers. 
draw near to God, persevere, show concern for the brothers. Okay, and then toward the middle of chapter 12, we come to another exhortation. And the exhortation specifically, not to fall short of the grace of God like Esau did. And why should we heed this exhortation? Because of the superiority of the new covenant. You've not come to Mount Sinai with just, you know, firestorm and earthquake and that kind of stuff. Oh, no. Something far more important. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God. You've come to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, and the blood that doesn't call for vengeance but for forgiveness. You've come to this great superior position. He says, look where you are. The superiority of the new covenant backs up this exhortation not to fall short, and then, finally, all this introduction, he comes to ethical exhortations again. It's the same pattern. Superiority of the new covenant, don't fall short, so lead this kind of life. And the three things that particularly concern him, our worship of God, drawing near, relationship with him, our persevering in the Christian life, and our brotherly love, especially in the midst of persecution. And let's see if he takes up those same considerations. At the end of chapter 12, he says in verse 25, verses 25 to 27, do not refuse God speaking. Draw near. Don't hold back. He says in verses 28 and 29, worship God with gratitude and reverence. So here again, this relationship to God. We need to draw near, to respect him. He's a consuming fire. We need not to refuse his voice. And then at the beginning of what we call chapter 13, unfortunately, you see what happens, is that someone broke the pattern right there. From a literary standpoint, they should have backed up and broken it either here or here, or maybe even here. But you see how that gives the impression? Well, now we just come to these loose exhortations. They aren't loose at all. He now moves into brotherly love. Let love of the brothers continue, and we're going to talk about that tonight. Show brotherly love, especially in persecution, verses 1, 2, and 3 say. Then there's a call to uh, purity, respecting sex and possessions, verses 4 to 6. He says, follow your spiritual fathers, not heretics, <clears throat> verses uh, 7 to 12. And then having gone through that cycle of these three considerations, he does it again. Verses 13 and 14, bear Christ's reproach and praise his name. Verse 15, draw near. Submit, no, excuse me, be generous. In verse 16 he says, that brotherly love continue. And submit to your spiritual leaders, even as he said earlier, imitate the faith of your fathers. And so, you don't have a mechanical repetition here. And I'm not trying to argue that the author had an outline in front of him that he was purposely following like this, but it's not difficult to see the same rotation of ideas leading into the same types of considerations. Chapter 13 is not a postscript. Chapter 13 is the continuation of a thought to begin back here, don't fall short of the grace of God because of the superiority of the new covenant. And if that's the case, you're going to have a certain relationship to God, to your brothers, and to this idea of persevering in the faith. We're going to take up the idea of brotherly love beginning at verse 1 then of chapter 13. The author says, let love of the brethren continue. Actually, in the Greek, it's an order to continue in brotherly love. The word Philadelphia, from two Greek words, uh, philo, or phileo, to love, and adelphos, which is brother, the name of the city, in Asia Minor, Philadelphia, the name of the city the United States. Philadelphia. I lived in Philadelphia. I didn't particularly find it to live up to its name. But uh, the name was a good one. Philadelphia. Really beautiful. The idea of brotherly love. We find a particular Christian use of the concept of Philadelphia, however, because outside of the Bible, Philadelphia means family loyalty. Love of your brother, your physical brother. But you see, within the Christian faith, those who share our commitment to Jesus Christ, our family, they're our brothers. Notice how the author himself has um, held to that conception. Chapter 3, verse 1, 
Wherefore, holy brothers, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and so forth. Verse 12, take heed, brothers, lest after there be in any one of you an evil part of unbelief. Chapter 6, verse 9, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. And in chapter 10, verse 19, having therefore brothers, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. The author frequently calls his readers his brothers, his beloved brothers. He says, you're my family, the ones I love. Throughout the New Testament, we find the same conception of fellow believers as family members, or to use just one kind of family relation, as brothers in the Lord. Romans 12, verse 10.
there's a sense in which when you join the lodge, you know, you have lodge brothers too, right? That's kind of a, a real inferior analogy. But you see, Christians are not brothers simply because they're in the same association, because we're members of the same club. There's a theological basis for our brotherhood. And uh, the author of Hebrews, it turns out, reflects on that himself in chapter 2 of his epistle at verse 11 and following. Hebrews 2.11. We read, For both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brothers in the midst of the congregation while I sing thy praise. Now who is it that is saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation while I sing thy praise? Whose words are those? David said it in the Psalms, but he said it speaking for whom? The Messiah. It's Jesus who says, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers. And I'll be declare and praise God's name in the congregation before you. You see, the reason we are brothers is because, first and foremost, we've all been made brothers to Jesus. Jesus, who is the only true Son of God, not just in the ontological sense, but in the ethical sense, too. He alone can claim that kind of kinship to God. He says, only the Son can declare the Father. He's in a unique position as the Son. And yet Jesus draws us into that same family circle and makes us adopted children of God by making us his brothers. And you see, the reason I'm your brother and you're mine is because first and foremost, we're both brothers to Jesus. And I think if we, if we thought in, in that conception, we might, uh, might get beyond the kind of shallow and pale understanding of brotherhood in the Christian assembly that I'm afraid um, really has become something like a lodge membership thing. It really is not all that attractive. But the kind of love that will lay down life for the brothers um, stems from the fact that we know that each and every one of us belongs to the same Savior and has a brotherhood relationship with Him. Well, it's not just brotherhood that derives from Jesus. It's also the love of the brothers that derives from Jesus. Look at John 13, verse 34. Because we love the brothers. 
see that love not abides in death. Verses 16 to 18, Hereby know we love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And whoso has the world's goods, and beholds his brother in need, and shuts up his compassion from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither with the tongue, but in deed and in truth. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loves is begotten of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. Herein was the love of God manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so the author of Hebrews, um, though it's a short exhortation, has really summed up a lot of New Testament theology and ethics when he says, not only should we draw near to God and make sure we worship him aright, but we should continue in brotherly love. Now there's a sad aspect of this verse 1 from Greek grammarians. Um, you will notice if you study this in Greek that the form of the imperative is that form which implies that they had stopped loving one another. They weren't continuing in this. And it's really sad because in chapter 10, verse 32, the author has already said, Call to remembrance the former days, which after you were enlightened, you endured a great conflict with suffering, partly being made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly becoming partakers with them that were so used. For you both had compassion on them that were in bonds, and took joy through the spoiling of your possessions, knowing that you have yourselves a better possession in an abiding way. The office is in the past, you have had compassion for one another. You've been willing to suffer with each other. You really have demonstrated love. And now it has to reward them. Continue to do so. Because you haven't been doing it. Not only are they tending to fall away, you see, from the living God, but in so doing, they're falling away from brotherly love. Have you ever heard people say something to the effect that that they like Christianity and they like the Christian church for the kind of social relationships that it encourages, but they just can't go along with the theology or the philosophical circles, the metaphysics of it all. I can't, I can't buy into the metaphysics of Christianity, but I, I like the lifestyle. I like the way we're supposed to relate to one another. You know, and even if you don't have the sophisticated way of saying it, there's all sorts of people who want Jesus as a good teacher. What did he teach? Brotherly love. But they don't want Jesus as the Savior and as the Son of God. And, uh, victorious over death and things like that. Well, I would suggest to you that if we understand the theology of Hebrews, you can't have it that way. Falling away from the living God is also to fall away from brotherly love. Those two go hand in hand. And here's the sign of love, verse 2, Forget not to show love unto strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hospitality. Loving in word is, is good, doesn't cost a lot. <clears throat> loving indeed is better. And loving indeed means showing hospitality, opening your home to your Christian brothers and sisters. That doesn't fit in well. I mean, we tend to think, you know, some people have a personality, they can entertain. You know, the, others of us, we're shy and retiring, we live unto ourselves. And, so it's kind of like their gift is entertainment and mine is, I don't know, Here it says you all better have that gift because you shouldn't forget to show hospitality. You say, but I beat my house all fixed up and I don't like people coming in and seeing the mess. Well, I once said in the sermon a long time ago that I'm afraid that we let our pride get in the way of our lives, don't we? It'd be much better for people to come into my home and know that I love them, even though I don't have everything picked up all the time, than to have them think I'm this, this perfect poster, hostess, whatever it may be, in this particular case, and, and have this spotless reputation for your house. Forget not to show love, actually, hospitality. This is unto strangers. Uh, I have a verse here, uh, 3 John, verse 5. Beloved, now 
doest a faithful work in whatsoever thou doest for them that are brethren and strangers withal. John commends the people doing his righteousness. He says, you shall love even the strangers. That's what the author of Hebrews says. You ought to be loving even the strangers. And it doesn't mean strangers, religious strangers. It means those who are Christian strangers, those who are brothers in the faith. You don't know them that well. So I'm going to make it real easy for this congregation. I could go and push to the outer limits of this ethical requirement. And now we've had some people join our congregation the last few weeks. We're having some more uh, in a couple of uh, couple weeks. Uh, God has really blessed us this way. The really wonderful families and individuals. How many of you have gone out of your way to meet them? I mean, just to meet them. I'm not to the tough part yet. I just, to walk over and say, hi, my name is such and such, and I'd like to get to know you better. How many of you have invited them to your home? Even their little children. The author of Hebrews says, do you understand that you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the mediator of a new covenant, through the blood that has been sprinkled? Do you understand the superiority of the blessings you have in the new covenant? Not only will you worship God with gratitude and awe, but you show love to the brothers, even those who are strangers. Then he adds this little enticement, because some people would so do it, entertain angels unawares. They weren't even aware they were doing that. Sometimes God sends angels. You don't know that he may be entertaining an angel of God. Now, what story in the Old Testament, or stories, would the author of Hebrews be thinking of here, in particular? Abraham, that's right. Genesis, the 18th chapter. Three visitors came to Abraham, three strangers, and he entertained them very well. It's not until they get ready to leave that Abraham finally finds out who they were. He'd been entertaining angels unawares, and in particular, he'd been entertaining the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, in his pre-incarnate faith. In the 19th chapter of Genesis, we read of Lot coming across two men in the town square of Sodom, and he is hospitable to them, opens his home, takes care of them, wants to protect them when the men of the city later come. He didn't know at the time that he was entertaining angels, unaware. You think of another story in the Old Testament? Not as well known. Manoah and his wife, remember, had a messenger come and was hungry and they showed hospitality, turned out to be the angel of the Lord as well. So the author of Hebrews, I'm sure, is thinking of these Old Testament stories. The real question, I know the one you want to know is, well, can that happen today? <laughs> can it happen when the author of Hebrews is writing this? There's two opinions. One would say, the author is thinking of well-known Old Testament stories, and he's just reminding you, show love unto strangers because some people in the past have entertained angels unaware of that way. The other point of view, the one that I'm more inclined to, that makes more sense to me existentially is, why would the author say that? If his point is, God doesn't do that sort of thing anymore, but he did it in the past, and so you go ahead and entertain strangers today. I mean, this doesn't, doesn't carry a lot of persuasive weight. <laughs> and so I'm going to bite the bullet, be the odd guy out, and say, I think it's possible there may be some Christian biker that comes to our congregation someday, and you'd be surprised. No one knows where he came from or where he went afterwards. Maybe he was an angel. God sent to see just how hospitable we would be. Well, think it over yourself. <laughs> the author in verse 3 says, Remember them that are in prison as being in prison with them. Another area, uh, and this is, it's not my intention to scold or to slap hands tonight, but you know, in our congregation, what kind of prison ministry do we have? And we need to call on our deacons and our elders and all of you really to think about that. Remember those who are in prison. Now, the author doesn't mean just the prison ministry in general, however. I want to distinguish that from what is on his mind. He's thinking here of those who are in bonds because of their Christian testimony in particular. This is the persecution that's coming upon them. I've already read chapter 10 twice. Remember? He says, you, you know, willingly allowed your goods to be spoiled, and you went and visited those in prison and so forth. Matthew, the 25th chapter, Jesus talks about the day of judgment. They're going to be those who, um, who are commended by Jesus because they gave him a drink of water or they visited him when he was in prison. And then they're going to say, well, Jesus, what did we do 
giving you anything to drink or visiting you in prison, he will answer what? As much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. When Christian brothers are being persecuted, whether they're literally behind bars or not, when Christian brothers are in prison, when they're in bonds and being afflicted, we need to go through that suffering with them. To the degree that is possible, we need to let them know that we stand with them. That we'll suffer along with them. That's what he says, as though in bonds with them. Paul knew very well what that was like. If you'll um, look at 2 Timothy 1.16, one of the most wonderful commendations in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 1.16 The Lord grant mercy into the house of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. I want you to pray for, and I'm asking God's blessing upon this household, because this man came and when I was in prison, when I was in chains, he was not only unashamed of that, but he refreshed me often. I mean, we don't know what it's like to suffer persecution. How lonely people get, how many doubts run through their minds and so forth. The need for Christian brothers to suffer with them is a very large one. So remember them that are in bonds, is bound with them, and then he adds, them that are ill-treated as being yourselves also in the body. Here he's talking about the other kinds of tribulation and distress and persecution that believers go through that may not be um, imprisonment. There are, there's a lot of ill-treatment. And even here in Christian America, there's a lot of ill-treatment of believers that fall short of being put in prison. Do you know people at work that are made fun of because they're Christians? Do you stand up for them? You know people who are suffering some kind of discrimination, either at work or in the family, in your neighborhood? Do you take your side? Remember those who are being ill-treated as being yourselves also in the body. And what does that mean? Calvin took it to mean because they're in the body of Christ and you're in the body of Christ. When one part of the body suffers, all parts suffer. I really don't think that's what the author here means, though Calvin is theologically correct in that remark. I think here the author is using it the same way that um, Paul uses the expression in the body in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, where he speaks of uh, to be in the body means his earthly existence, and to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. And the reason why we should remember those who are ill-treated is because the suffering they go through, we're subject to as well. We're also living through this earthly existence in our bodies. <coughs> okay, I think we have time for verse 4 as well. Let's go back and remember what the author is saying. The author, in chapter 12, has said, verse 22, But you are come unto Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable hosts of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. This is where you are. Understand your theological position. And if you do, what are you going to do about that? You won't refuse God's speaking, but you'll give to him grateful and reverent worship. You'll show love to the brothers that comes to expression and hospitality, even to strangers, and a prison ministry, and identifying with those who are ill-treated in the body. And another thing you will do if you understand this is that you will honor sexual purity. The author's going to go on and talk about purity with respect to possessions as well. We'll have to do that next week. But in verse 4, it says, Let marriage be had in honor among all, and let the bed be undefiled, the fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Those who engage in sexual sins have forgotten where they stand before God in the New Covenant. They've forgotten that they come to God, the judge of all, and they stand before Jesus, the mediator of the New Covenant. And they come to the blood sprinkling that doesn't call for vengeance but forgiveness. There are two, um, two groups of people being addressed in verse 4 here. And they're really on opposite sides of the fence when it comes to sexual sin. The first 
those who are teaching a form of Christian asceticism. Asceticism, um, oxtasis in Greek means discipline, sometimes severe discipline, when an athlete goes through in training. It came to mean, in the Greek world, the denial of one's body. Sometimes athletes deny themselves in training, right? They go out for hot fudge Sundays every night, and, uh, and they push themselves hard running and getting their endurance up and so forth. So ostasis, asceticism, comes to mean denial of the body for the sake of moral discipline. And the ascetics in the Christian church had taken to teaching that sex was a necessary evil. It was necessary because the human race would die out if there weren't sexual relations, but it, it was evil, and for those who could do so, it would be much better to show their spirituality by not engaging in sexual relations at all. Some early church fathers castrated themselves or talked to themselves because they thought they would become more spiritual. Many taught it would be better not to marry. And of course, this develops ultimately into the monastic orders, the monasteries, and the vows of celibacy that the Roman Catholic Church continues to honor and to promote in our day. Although there's very few people who believe in the sincerity of those who take them today, the fact is, through the ages, Christians have been afflicted with that form of teaching. And it was already being taught in the days of the New Testament. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 as an example. Spirit, but the Spirit says expressly that in later times some will fall away from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons through the hypocrisy of men to speak lies branded in their own conscience as to the hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats which God created to be received in thanksgiving, and so forth and so on. So here we have an example already in the Christian church of those who are saying, don't marry. That's, that's really not the way to go here. If you're going to be a good, strong Christian, be celibate. So the author of Hebrews says something which I think we ought to appreciate setting the record straight. He says, let marriage be held in honor by all. And I want to stress that by all. The author doesn't say, let marriage be held in honor for those who have to give in to their sexual urges. He says, let everyone honor marriage. It is good. When did marriage begin? After the fall, after the forbidden fruit, right? state of marriage and sexual relations were part of that creation that God pronounced good. Marriage is not evil. It is not an inferior spiritual state. Sex is not in and of itself something that Christians ought to be against. In fact, if you've ever read the Song of Solomon and haven't been deluded by the spiritualists and the allegorists who, who treat the book, you know very well the Bible is pro-sex. Uh, but then secondly, of course, the Bible is pro-sex within marriage and only within marriage. And so that's why the author, having said, let marriage be held in honor among all, adds, and let the bed be undefiled. Why is that? Because fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And so this is an exhortation against those who... Um, do not hold marriage in honor, but it's also an exhortation against those who are sexually loose, those who would defile the marriage bed. The author speaks of two groups of people, the immoral and the adulterous. The immoral... Please turn tape over at this time. The two categories mentioned in verse 4, fornicators and adulterers, and I'm suggesting that fornication here is being used in the broader sense of sexual relations outside of the marriage bond, and then... Uh, adulterers uh, deals with those who are engaged in sexual relations contrary to the marriage covenant. That is, those who are violating or not keeping faith in their marriage. Um, so all kinds of sexual relations that are contrary to God's um, ordained state of marriage are being condemned here. And the time is short, but I, I do want to speak to you briefly about two things that I feel as Christian pastors have to be applied from this verse today, at least the second part of it. Uh, ours is not an age that, um, that needs to be told that sex is okay. It is an age that needs to be told that marriage is honorable. We live in a day and age where marriage is ridiculed, although 
the pendulum is swinging, of course, if I, if I read the Times correctly. But uh, believe me, when I was in college and, and thereafter, there was a real disdain for the estate of marriage. You know, as uh, Glenn Campbell could sing, you know, ink stains that have dried upon some line. Those are marriages. Oh, it's not happening. It's a vibrant, living, wonderful, beautiful thing. So marriage is not really held in honor, although sex is thought to be pretty good. Uh, in our day age. But you see, our age doesn't honor marriage and therefore doesn't really honor sex. And I just want you to reflect on the unbridled license of our age. Preachers, I guess, have a reputation for doing that, but uh, you know, even wanting to avoid sounding like a fundamentalist, what I have to tell you is just uh, terribly offensive to live in our day and age. The attitudes towards sex are displayed everywhere. How often do you see bumper stickers, you know, waitresses serve it up hot or whatever? Uh, on and on and on. That's supposed to be a really funny way to relate to one another, you know, referring to the sex act in this way. And we've gotten to the place where we, I and mean, that's how low we've come, it seems to me. Um, the kind of stuff, not just that's available in the movie theaters or on your home video set anymore, but what's available just on. Uh, I'm appalled. I really am. And I don't consider myself a prude. Our age doesn't think anything of uh, sexual immorality. Uh, one, one wonders whether it's even possible for our age to become appalled at a sexual sin anymore. I mean, it's become just so banal. The author of Hebrews says, we as Christians had better be careful that the dead not be undefiled. Our attitudes should not be affected by our age and the loose thinking of our age. And I'm afraid our attitudes often are in the church. I'm glad that, um, that I have been taught and I'm glad that God gives me a conviction about um, the pastoral office and the kind of sensitivity and privacy that's involved in counseling in the pastoral office. And we'll tell you in general, I think that you would be bowled over if you knew how often your pastors have to counsel people about sexual sins in the congregation. Well, there are people outside, of course, unbelievers and those who go to weaker churches and so forth, but even in the best churches. The Christian church has become a pale reflection of the world and its looseness about the marriage family. A man who is a pastor who rationalized his ongoing relationship with a young girl that he was not married to, he was married to someone else. Because he said he was not committing adultery with her because they were only engaged in oral sex. And so, as far as he was concerned, marriage had not been undefiled, had not been defiled. Now, how does a person who is in a pastor get to a place of rationalizing? There's this violation of the kind of intimacy and love that's supposed to be between a husband and wife. I've heard um, Christians uh, rationalize uh, their sexual relation because it didn't go as far as adultery, because there wasn't intercourse involved, just the exposing of someone's breast, perhaps. Well, now I'm thinking of our day and age may easily accept that and may lead us into that kind of rationalization, but not thinking on the bottom. Proverbs, the fifth chapter, verse 19, you know, where a young man is exhorted, let your wife's breast satisfy you always. You know, thinking of the Bible doesn't associate, as our day and age does, sexual matters and immorality only with sexual intercourse, but the intimacies of love and affection as well. And I bring these things up because the author tells us that we are to make sure the bed is undefiled, and God will judge those who fornicate, those who are adulterous. The author is not saying that to unbelievers. He's saying that to people whom he has called brothers and beloved brothers throughout the epistle. We think that we as Christians are somehow now in a situation where sexual sin and immorality and temptation are beyond the pale of possibility. We really are in the grip of the devil. That's where he wants us to believe it. 
faith, this didn't happen to us. So I'd exhort you tonight, not just on the basis of what you've heard tonight, but in our previous lesson too, remember where you stand before God. It'd be enough if you stood at Mount Sinai and heard the rumbling, and saw the thunder, uh, saw the lightning, and heard the thunder, and the firestorm of God's presence, that you would be careful to obey what he said. But the author says, oh no, your privilege is far greater. You come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the city of the living God. You're standing in the very presence of God in the new covenant. And the blood of Jesus is calling out for forgiveness for you. And considering that privilege, and how should we relate to God? Don't refuse me. Listen closely to the Word of God. And worship with gratitude. Did you do that last Wednesday? Last Thursday, I gave you some exhortation. I tried to remind you on Sunday about that. Did you come to church happy to be in church? Grateful to be there? Did you worship God in reverence and awe? Are you loving the brothers? Or have you remember times where you did, but you know, kind of falling in and out? And do you feel that family relationship? Enough that you're hospitable? You go out of your way to look for strangers, help them out? Are we concerned for those who are suffering persecution as Christians? Are we concerned about our sexual attitudes and behavior? Well, in any of these ways we are falling short. I would again remind you, look where you've come. Look where God has brought you. And remembering that, let's see if we can't fall in some of these ethical consequences of being in the privilege of a new covenant relationship with God. Father, we thank you for our privileges. We thank you that we are children of the Most High God. We thank you that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call us brothers and to invite us into your family. We thank you that we have come not just to an earthly mountain, but we've come to the very heavenly presence of the Most High God, to the King of Heaven, to the mediator of the new covenant. And we thank you above all for the blood of that covenant that has been shed for our salvation. As we have heard your word tonight, we are all smitten to the heart. We all must confess that we fall short of your glory. We have not loved as we should. We have not loved you the way we should. We have not loved our brothers the way we should. We've broken your law in so many ways. We pray that you would remind us of your forgiving grace. Remind us of where we are as your people. Remind us that we stand in your holy presence. And with that reminder, help us then to sanctify our lives, to bring true glory to your name, to feed you as you speak from heaven to us, to love the family, the Christian family that you put in, to honor the marriage debt that it be undefined, and help us in all those other ways that we have not yet spoken of, Lord, as we read in this epistle, that we would not fall short of your grace, but we would persevere to the end and demonstrate in our lifestyle and our profession that we truly are children of the heavenly name. We pray in Jesus' name.